Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural podcast of the digital side. Uh, my name is James Down. I am the principal sales architect for cloud, and I'm here with... Cliff Madrew. I'm the vice president of our solution architect team. So we want to talk about a few things today. Uh, mostly we want to talk about a video that I found uh, that I sent to Cliff. Yeah. Yeah, so we th I thought it'd be cool to kick, kick off kind of the, the podcast with... Uh, just a, a quick clip that James sent me uh, two weeks ago or so, um, which is uh, CEO at JP Morgan, and, and James will kind of give you more details on, on the individual, but ultimately talking about cybersecurity, talking about scale uh, within the financial industry, and you know talking about really what it takes to protect information and, and remain relevant in the, in the industry. And I thought it was just a great way for us to kick things off and dissect what was said a little bit and just talk through it as it relates to our products and where we're going uh, with our portfolio. So this is actually uh, Mary Callahan Erdos. She is the CEO of Asset and Wealth Management at J.P. Morgan. Um, so J.P. Morgan is made up of a whole bunch of different divisions. Uh, this is one of the bigger ones. So um, you know, this is something that I actually saw on the TV and uh, we'll play it through and then I'll tell you a little bit about you know, what we think. The, that, so I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is today, it is really hard to imagine not being a bank at scale. I, I can't imagine having to figure out how to protect yourself from a cyber perspective or a technology perspective. We spend $10 billion a year on technology. We have 50,000 technologists. That's the size of like most firms in total. We spend three quarters of a billion dollars just on cyber protection. And so we, to, to keep up with that is really, really hard. So I used to work at JP Morgan. I was a consultant there. And you know, she's talking about you know, $50 billion, whatever it was that they're spending on security. That could very well just be her particular division, right? So the, the reach and the size of JP Morgan is astronomically large, right? So the question becomes, and, and you know, I, I know Cliff, you got some ideas about this. What does a smaller bank do, right? right? Because the reality of the situation is that, and it's not just banks; it's every institution. If you don't have a problem yet, you're either really lucky or you don't know about it. Right. Eventually, you're going to have that problem. Yeah, and I think there's a couple of things that are really interesting about what she's saying. Um, number one, absolutely accurate that that most banks, most regional banks, and, and other financial institutions don't have that scale. They don't have fifty thousand technologists, uh, you know, on on hand to. To help it could them be through, hundred thousand. Right. It may just be may her be her division. <laughs> right, right. But, but it, it shows a couple of things. Number one, it shows how prevalent this whole transformation around digital, um, you know, really is um, in in the financial vertical. But as we know, with our customers, just across the spectrum, um, it shows that a company at scale may have the resources to keep up. But from from the lens and from what I'm hearing, a company that doesn't have that scale is really gonna need the right service providers and the right partners to help them through. Um, you know, and, and as it relates to cybersecurity, which is also what she was discussing here, um, it becomes a critical area that a service provider can add a heck of a lot of value to a customer. So I, one of the things that I took away from it is, is how seriously they take the threat, right? So, I mean, these are some of the largest institutions in the world, and she's essentially saying that you know, we have a handle on it, right? But we're not as comfortable as we want to be. We don't feel as confident in our, our abilities to fix this as we want to be. So we're investing more money every year. We're looking for ways to not only invest internally, but to find a way to have the industry be better. Because if you think about it, right, this is one of those industries where if something were to happen, right, it's not just, hey, a company had a problem. You could have a national security problem. You could have a run on the banks. This is really high stakes. So she's playing in a world where, you know, if there's one problem, the perception of the company and the reputation of the company is hit so hard that the ramifications could not only be stock and money, but, you know, regulatory or, or something horrible happening to the banking system. You know, the other thing that I took away from what she was saying is, is that if you don't think this way now and you're not trying to keep ahead, things change so fast and things happen so quickly that, that you'll get caught, you know, unawares and you'll have a real bad problem. So, you know, one of the things that I, I was telling you the story about the YouTube driver, right? So I take a lot of YouTubes, and I was telling Cliff the story about uh, a guy I was driving with. He was a cab driver in Brooklyn. So about six, seven years ago, him and his brother went out and they bought a, uh, a hack medallion in New York City. 
So for people who aren't familiar with that, that's the license you need to drive a cab in Manhattan. And it's very expensive. They spent like half a million dollars on buying this license between the two of them so they could drive a cab legally in New York. They did this for a few years. They made good money to the point where two, three years into it, somebody else came to them and said, hey, I want to buy the license from you for a million bucks, right? So they would have doubled their money. And they didn't take it, right? They said, all right, we don't want to do that. We don't think it's worth it. Everyone's making money. This is a business. We're going to pass it down to our kids. Right. Well, as you all know, as I mentioned Uber, Uber came into New York City and completely disrupted that, right? So they weren't thinking ahead. Now, granted, they're not J.P. Morgan. They're just some guys who drive a cab. But the story, I think, is very relevant because within a year or two years, right, their business got completely decimated. That medallion that was worth at one time a million dollars, they couldn't sell for 250000 right. Now, neither one of them drives cabs. One guy drives Uber and the other guy's a plumber. So that shows you if you don't really get ahead of it, how fast the, the technology moves, how fast the landscape changes, it cuts the legs out from under you. Right. And you can find yourself in a position where you know you think you're gonna drive a cab for the rest of your life and now you don't know what you're doing with yourself. Right. You know, to use a metaphor. Yeah, no, it's a great one. And I mean <clears throat> it's a true story around, you know, both digital innovation and transformation that just kind of rocked a whole industry, right? That rocked a whole a whole market. And um you know, with Uber in particular, the amount of data that they need to leverage and that they've had to evolve over time. You know, in the beginning, it was more of a free-for-all in terms of signing up sure. and background checks and everything yeah. else that they went through. And they right? had problems because of that. Correct. So um, then they got better at leveraging data, leveraging, you know, interconnected sources of information to do background checking and all of this kind of different ways to, to deal with the new market, essentially, that they sure. created and the new platform, I guess, is a better way to put it. Um, so I think it's a great example. It, it, it ties back in, though, if we just come back to the security side of things and, you know, what was mentioned in the video. This is where I think, you know, Iron Mountain and Iron Cloud, we, we found, you know, we're very well positioned in the market in an area that we really focus on. When you look at the solutions that we offer, like critical protection and recovery, which is designed around protecting data, uh, from some of the cybersecurity risks that are being mentioned in the video, um, having that available to the entire market, regardless of how large you are, um, th those are the ways I think that companies can leverage uh, a partner and a provider like an Iron Mountain uh, to ensure that they're able to meet the requirements around protecting their information. And you know, James can probably talk a little bit about some real conversations he, sure. he's had and, and what he's seen in the market around how vulnerable most organizations are. And, and in many cases, depending on who you're speaking with in an organization that I've found, it, they don't even see all of the vulnerabilities, sure. depending on, again, who, where they're sitting within the organization, what their role might be, um, and how others within their vertical have been impacted. Um, I just sat recently with a, a very large financial institution that you know was we were coming right off of uh, the week prior another large institution had an outage and so it caused them to really panic and have you know their their board and, and their executive team asking them to do a full analysis of their data protection strategy you know could they have an outage if they had an outage how vulnerable are they uh, from a cyber risk perspective and you know, in speaking with the, the the CTO in that organization, they had identified, yeah, you know, we, we can recover, we can fail over, but we are definitely at risk from a cybersecurity perspective. And this is a very large organization. So, I mean, doesn't that really speak to what she was saying? And also, if you think about it, what the cab driver said, right? right. So, you know, I worked in backup for a long time, and nobody cares about backup, right? Until something goes wrong, right? You know, if you're not getting ahead of it, right, if you're not thinking about it today, you're not going to think about it until you have a bad problem, until right. something happens. And I think that that's exactly what you're describing. You've got an organization that was, oh, hey, everything's good to go, until one day it wasn't. Right. Right. And now, if you think about it, from a, you know, if you're the guy responsible for the business part of that, like I'm the backup guy, whatever, now I have a problem. You know, the day before, I woke up and I was happy-go-lucky. I went to work. I had lunch with my friends. Everything was good. Now, today, I'm wondering, do I have a job? Right? Because we had a huge breach because I didn't think ahead. Right. And I think really that's the point of what she's saying in the video that not only do you need to think about it, but you know, for most institutions it's almost impossible to stay ahead of it doing it yourself. Yeah. Right. There's so much institutionalized knowledge, there's so much like 
thought that goes into how to do it, not only on the good guy side, but also on the bad guy side, right? So you know what they say. Every time you fix something, right, people figure out a hundred different ways to hack it. Right. So there's always this one-upsmanship, this game, right? Right. So I do have an interesting story I wouldn't mind telling you about. Uh, I call it the black duck egg story. Um, and this kind of illustrates what I'm talking about. And I actually like to tell a story. I tell it in front of people when I speak. So um, black duck egg story is about a guy... Um, named Ira Winkler. He's a, uh, a security uh, speaker analyst. He's a, a guy who does cybersecurity. So he was asked to speak at a conference at a research facility, a pharmaceutical research facility in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. right? So he goes out there and he does this speech and you know it's in the middle of nowhere on purpose. They want to isolate the research, right? So he does a speech and after his speech he goes, all right, where can we get lunch, right? Ask the people, they go, you know what? We have the best Chinese restaurant in the world, okay? Now, no offense to anybody who's listening in Nebraska, but I promise you, you don't have the best Chinese in the world. Like, I live in Manhattan, and we don't even have the best Chinese in the world, right? Right. right. But he goes, and he has lunch, and indeed, fantastic Chinese food, right? And they have something on the menu called black duck eggs, which I guess are a delicacy, I believe, in Beijing, specific to that region, right? And they're like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a fertilized egg that they store in vinegar. It's a whole thing, right? And believe me, I'm a guy who likes to eat, and I don't think I would be down on the black duck eggs. It's an acquired taste, right? Right. So he goes, and he gets curious, right? And he goes, all right, why do they have this here? So he calls some law enforcement friends, because he's that kind of guy, and they do some research. Well, it turns out that the reason they had black duck eggs there is there were five Chinese operatives working in that facility. And that Chinese restaurant, although also a very good Chinese restaurant, was also where the People's Liberation Army was running the uh, operation out of. That was where the handlers worked for the operatives that were inside of this research facility. So, you know, if you're not thinking about threats, and if you're not thinking about how to protect yourself, it's gonna come get you. And it's gonna get you in the most innocuous way you can think of. Right. You know? I don't know if you saw the State Department put out a thing that said, you know, the number one threat to US business right now is insider threats. Right. Right? And those insider threats are no longer you know, some guy in the basement, I'm going to date myself, you probably never even saw this movie, which hurts my feelings, but uh, for, the, for the people who are, are, you know, a little more savvy, um, if you guys remember War Games with Matthew Broderick. I remember War right, Games. Yeah. You don't remember War Games. You saw War, I saw games, War games at some games, point. Exactly. Right? But if you remember, I mean, he was just some kid right. in the basement, right? He was working, he was uh, dialing phone numbers. That's not reality anymore. Right. You know, these guys are, you know, organized crime. These guys are you know, Russian federal services, these are people who have unlimited resources. And, you know, you have no way to fight them. You have no offensive weapons. Right. All you can think about is how do I defend myself? And did I build enough infrastructure? Did I build enough process? Did I build enough forethought into the way I'm doing things right. that if something does happen, I'm going to be safe? Well, and that concept of an insider threat, right, is one that I think is easy to either dismiss or be blind to. Sure. Um, that's, that's the one I think you know, there, there are plenty of ways to protect your data, but the reality is if you're leveraging your own internal resources to do that, the basis of knowledge as to how that protection scheme really works mm -hmm. is internal to the organization. And that, to me, in and of itself, is a risk, right? Is, yeah. is you know, it's, it's, it's a potential way that, that the data gets compromised, and that has proven to be uh, the fact on many occasions, yeah. right? So I, I don't, I forget what the recent statistic was, but it was between 20 and 30% I think uh, of attacks. Well, uh, I mean purposely in, Internal, right? right, yep. So, you know, the way it works, my understanding of the way it works is the, these are model employees, right? They go through US universities, you hire them through your normal process, they're great for five years. They sit there, they do their job. Hey, you know, Bobby, can you work over the weekend? Sure, boss, whatever you need, right? But then one day, you know, somebody calls them on the phone and says, hey, you're activated. And it turns out that Bobby wasn't an employee at all. Bobby was an intelligence officer, right? right? And now Bobby's cleaning out your data. Bobby's, you know, destroying your machines because that was his job. Right. And how do you stop that? I mean, how do you even identify that? Right. I yeah. mean, you, you, you hired me. Biggest mistake <laughs> you've ever made. But you hired me, right? So, I, you know, we can, we can question, you know, Cliff's taste in employees. But my point being is that, you're qualified at some point to determine whether I'm a effective employee within certain job functions, right. but are you qualified to figure out if I am an intelligence officer? You know, it seems like a different set of skills to me. You know it what I mean? definitely does. Yeah. Know, that's, like, why, yeah. that's why we rely on, you know, others in the organization to do our background checks. But who? And, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what background? Well, the check? psychiatrist that I sent you to probably. Well, well, that, yeah, that <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah. So For that psychoanalysis. Um, I, no, I agree and hear, hear what you're saying. And, and ultimately, if you, if you think just back to 
our position in the market as Iron Mountain. Um, you know, yeah. we've been known to, to be trusted to protect and store information, both physical and digital. But with modern day systems comes modern day threats, comes new really ways in which we have to uh, protect our customers' information. That, that's the purpose of a solution like critical, critical Protection and Recovery, or CPR as we call it. Um, you know, it's designed around the ultimate protection, both from external threats as well as internal threats, to ensure that all of the processes that happen uh, to move the data, to store the data, to take sure. that data offline, to you know ultimately air gap that data, you know, all happen through this managed service. And you know, you can you can do a lot of things internally, but you, 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 unless you're working with a third party to manage that environment, um, in in honestly. That's only half of the equation. The second half of that equation is where that data actually goes, and I know that that's something that that you find to be pretty unique and in, important around you know how the information is stored physically. So uh, you know, I was having a conversation with a, a CIO from a bank uh, about six months ago, and he said something to me that I've stolen and, and co-opted, and I'm going to do it again. He said that you know there's a difference now. Companies are good at securing their data, right? But it's not enough to secure your data anymore. You have to secure your data store. And what I took that to mean is that, you know, you do all these things that you've been doing for 25 years, right? Backup, uh, DR, disaster recovery, sorry, my computer wanted to beep. Uh, disaster recovery, uh, password policy, patching, all the stuff that companies do to protect themselves, they're pretty good at that. And most of it works pretty well at this point. But, you know, the way things have changed in, say, the last five years, right? It's not enough that your data is safe on your premises. If it's on your premises, it's still vulnerable. Right. So the idea is that it's not enough to have that front end secured. You have to secure where the data lives. You have to know and believe that that data is safe if you ever needed it. And what I say when I talk to customers is that you went through all this trouble to back it up, right? Mm -hmm. You did all this money, all this hassle. You got all these employees working on it. Can you be 100% confident, right, that if the, 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 the hits the fan, right, if things go south, mm -hmm. right, that that data is going to be there when you need it? Because if it isn't, if, if you can't be confident, then you might as well not have done the front of it. You right. might as well just, you know, thrown the money in the parking lot and burned it. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, that's that's what you're talking about. And, and there, there's, an, there's an interesting version of that. Bring up this slide with the Ocelot guy. Yeah, sure. So there's another story I like to tell, and I love this guy. And I say to people, and you'll see why in a minute, that if you're going to get hacked, right, this is the guy you want to get hacked by. This guy, you know, he looks like a James Bond villain. There you go. There he is. So this is a man that, uh, if, if you're going to get hacked, this is the guy you want to get hacked by, right? So his name is Eugeny Bogunachev, right? And he was a member of Brofta, the uh, Russian mob, right? That was his thing. He wasn't political. He wasn't an operative. He was a thief, right? And if you notice, he was a very successful thief because, as I like to say, he not only had money to buy an ocelot, he had money to buy a matching ocelot jumpsuit. So if you're going to get hacked, this is the dude you want to get hacked by. You could, you could at least go home once you're fired, and you can say, you know what? I got taken out by a guy who looks like he's from a James Bond movie. <laughs> you know, you got to find that silver lining. Right? Right. So, but what this guy did is he was just a thief, right? That's all he did. He had a botnet that stole $100 million, and he just stole data from people, stole bank accounts. That's all he did. Didn't care about your politics, wasn't trying to do anything like that. When the Russians found out, right, the Russian Federal Services, the... Uh, Federal Nayas Loshiva Bezel Pasnoski. Now, my daughter actually takes Russian in school. She's a, a Russian major. Uh, she wants to do something for the State Department, but she says I butcher that. But for most people, that sounds like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you so. most definitely butcher that. So <laughs> be that as it may, um, this is the, the real Russian security services, like their FBI, right? right? So when they found out about it, they didn't shut it down. They had no interest in shutting it down. What they said to Mr. Bogachev is that you now will allow us to access your botnet. And they did. So they went in there, and this guy was just a thief, right? They went in there, and they stole every bit of data they can get their hands on. You know, blackmail agents, steal money, whatever they wanted to do. So, you know, my point is that if you're not secure in where the data is, if you're not secure that the data is protected, you're going to run into a threat that you have no ability to stop. You know, who are you going to call? The FBI? What are you going to do to the Russians? Right. No? you got to make sure that the data lives in a place where the data has its own security around it, right. not just your front-end stuff, Right. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, do, do we want to talk about kind of just pivoting to how we try to do that sure. um, you yeah. know, at, at Iron Mountain? And 
some of our capabilities. So the the strongest thing we bring to the table, and I know that you know this is at least here, it's it's kind of beating a dead horse because we talk about it a lot, but it is our single biggest differentiator, yeah. which is the security of the physical data storage, right? So from a technology standpoint, you know, especially on our archival stuff, or you know, what people call Iron Cloud, right? Iron Cloud is technologically pretty much the same, right? And that's done on purpose. We want to make sure that we have interoperability with all these products. We don't want to be different that you can't use us, right? Where we're different is where your data actually lives, right? So I know a lot of employees have heard about Boyers, a lot of employees have heard about the undergrounds. That's super important to us. Those facilities are some of the most secure places in the world, right? So, you know, years and years and years ago, when I was a younger guy, I worked in um, classified naval data centers. These data centers that we keep cloud door storage in, customer cloud data in, are as close to that military-style experience as you're going to get in the commercial realm. And I don't care if you're a J.P. Morgan or if you're, you know, some guy with a computer store down the street or a hair salon. It doesn't matter how big the organization is. It doesn't matter how robust their data centers are. Our data centers where that cloud data lives are as good as it's going to get before you get to, like, the NSA and stuff like that. Right. And for most people, that's enough. I mean, you know, you don't need the NSA. Yeah, I think uh, one thing I've, I and I actually got called out on this with a, a customer, another large institution, that um, commented, actually, listen, I, I think you guys, uh, we've done a tour of Boyers. You know, we we understand your physical security. It's top notch. It's better than, than we have at our own facilities. But today is about digital threats as well. And, and you know, Tell me about what you do from a logical standpoint. How do you protect the data right from the network? That's where um, we add e even more value in terms of how well thought out the architecture of our solutions is. Um, and, and whether it's something simple like object storage where you're just connecting to a cloud to archive data, to store long-term retention or compliance data, as simple as that process may seem, not there, there's a there's a lot of complexities. I, I mean, as you know, on the solution architecture side of things, this is what we do. Um, you know, working through network, working through bandwidth requirements, working through all of those things. But on the security side, even just ensuring encryption on the data, ensuring that only an authorized machine or user has access to that data, that can get rather complex if you're doing you know the DIY cloud within a hyperscale provider. And that's another thing that I've found it resonates very well in, in talking with customer conversations, but we take that to the next level. So when you look at just object storage, sure, it's simple. We ensure encryption on the data. We lock it down. We have a zero trust model, which ensures that we're only right. allowing that authorized customer to access the information that is not ever on the public internet, if you will. Um, but then when you get into a solution like CPR, now you're also bringing in the concept of taking that data offline and how you're doing a, you know, essentially a pull or extraction of that data from the customer environment. So, so I mean, CPR is a good example, of that, but the bigger issue is that none of this exists in a vacuum, right? right. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I, I, you know, I hope that that's coming across here is that, yeah, it's wonderful that there's physical controls. It's wonderful that there's a digital set of controls. It's wonderful that you've thought through all these logical things, right? Mm -hmm. But if you do them as discrete items, right, where they don't connect together, right. you have vulnerabilities. So let's say that those are the three pillars, right? right. You're going to do physical, you're going to do, uh, you know, a, a logical separation, and you're going to do digital protection, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to do vi uh, virus scanning, intrusion detection, right? right? If you do any one of those three things, right, you're better off not, than not doing any of them, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't do all three, you're still vulnerable on the other two or whatever you haven't done, right? right? So, you know, that's, that's one of the challenges that we think we fix, right? So CPR is a good example. Yeah. So I'm going to, I think we should step back for a second, right? Because people might not know the data center, they might not know what CPR is, right? right? So when we talk about our data centers, they're the mountain part of Iron Mountain for the for the most part. They're undergrounds. Two, we have three of them that are cloud specific. Two of them are underground. One is in uh, the third one is in Manassas, Virginia. That's in the federal corridor. So that's built to be at a DoD setback. It's built to a very specific set of standards. That's where the data lives, and it's there for the most part uh, redundant across all three. That's one of the things that we do a little differently too. That's important because there are a lot of federal customers who exist in these facilities, right? So the only ones we can talk about are Social Security and the Patent Office, right? 
But I've been down, especially to Boyers, a whole bunch of times. And there are a lot of more interesting three-letter agencies that are down there. And the reason that that's important is because our facilities carry national security designation. So as you know, if something were to happen, we get services restored like a military base, which is kind of cool. Right. And what's even cooler, you know, if you've been there, there, there used to be. They made it a little more civilized. They put the, the visitor center at Boris. But when I first started going there, it was just a guard booth, right? And in the guard booth, they had a rack of, uh, like, M16s back there. That was pretty cool. Yeah, so. yeah and guards carrying them, right? right. <laughs> you felt like you were going into, like, a whole thing. So yeah. that was, that was kind of cool. Yeah. Do we want to – should we talk just a little bit about – I mean – our whole premise of the cloud is built a lot around different certifications and standards. Mm -hmm. uh, one of those being NIST, sure. um, their framework around cybersecurity and protection of, of uh, digital information. Should we just talk a little bit about, and maybe we can share that sure. framework and yeah, just talk about definitely. how we uh, um, how we fit in. Um, so hang on one sec, let me flip that over. Just while you're doing that, so. NIST is a, a government framework around uh, security, right? So it, it tells companies how to secure their data to be compliant for certain things that they want to do. And this is a weird one because you actually build to the, the level of security that you're looking for. So I worked in a, a classified facility, and the NIST standard for a classified facility is different if you want to do classified work than it is if you're just a regular company. But it's all built on the same kind of frameworks, right? So you want to identify your threats, you want to protect against them, you want to know how to detect them and how to respond to them. And a lot of companies are good with that, right? But the final part of it is recovering, right? So most people, if you say, hey, how do I recover? So this is kind of a transition to CPR a little bit. But if you go and you say, all right, I'm going to recover my data, most people think that's disaster recovery, which is something you might have heard, a term you might have heard thrown around. What that essentially means is that you have a secondary copy of your physical environment where you're putting your data every day. If there's a disaster, you, you can lose your primary. You can come up and you can run on your secondary copy, which is cool for most organizations, and it's been good for a long time. But the problem is now that a lot of these uh, malware and viruses are targeting those disaster recovery systems as well. So one of the things that happens that affects the ability to recover, uh, you know, for example, there was a virus that got out a couple of years ago called NotPetya. So NotPetya was a weapon that was designed by the Russians to attack the Ukraine. And it was kind of a super virus. It was everything that they knew about malware and viruses and, and really everything that they had done research-wise in one payload that was sent out. It was designed to be destructive. It was designed to move fast. It was designed to replicate itself. And it was very hard to stop, right? So you ended up with a situation where this thing attacked the Ukraine and it did what it was supposed to do. Took out infrastructure, power plants, did all those things. It was literally a weaponized virus but it got out into the wild, right? right. And it affected Maersk uh, shipping. That was the one that got affected uh, the hardest, right? right? Yeah. And they lost a lot of things, right? Including stuff you don't think of, like their router tables got corrupted. Right. But while disaster recovery, those DR systems are good for 80% of the scenarios, in this particular scenario, one of the things that NotPetya did was it went through and it destroyed the boot record on every machine that it attacked. So it went out, it destroyed the primary data, it destroyed the backup data, and then it also destroyed the ability for you to boot the systems that you were depending on for your disaster recovery. So you essentially lost the ability to recover. Right. And that's why a lot of companies are falling down on the recover aspect of NIST. Yeah, so the, the NIST cybersecurity framework, um, if you're just listening to this, obviously you're not, not seeing the slide, but it's really broken down into five key areas. So just, again, if you're listening, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Um, and so it, what ultimately James is saying is that uh, it, it's very possible to put the best protection in place, the best detection mechanisms, you know, have you know, a, a written document around response, uh, but if you don't have a plan that truly gives you the ability to recover outside of your existing uh, you know, in, in environment. And you, in fact, most companies are really good at that, right. the first four steps there. Right. You know, that's something people have been doing for a very long time. Yeah, I'm sure that's a good uh, component of the spend that was mentioned uh, on the sure. J.P. Morgan video around the three-quarters of a billion, I think, spent annually. Crazy. Yeah, something crazy yeah. like that, right? Um, and, and again, this is an area that, you know, that we, we think is, is one of the most critical in terms of worst-case scenarios sure. um, and, and that we bring a lot to the table. 
So that does beg the question, what, what do we bring to the table, right? right? What's our actual solution? So we've said the word CPR a couple of times, critical protection recovery. That is um, our name for what most people call cyber recovery or isolated recovery, which is an air gap, right? right. So you know what an air gap is, but right. for the sake of the audience, you want to tell them what an air gap is? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and this is where I'll, 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 uh, I'll have a difference of opinions from different people, right, sure. in terms of truly defining an air gap. But, but ultimately what we're talking about is having that complete network isolation that logical isolation that really plays back into even potentially a physical isolation, sure. uh, which which can be done uh, logically, right? The ways in which we, we do it with CPR, but it ensures that the source system and the destination system are not on the same network together, Correct. right? Um, and, that, and that's ultimately how the industry has adopted the term. Um, the, the reality of the term is one is really complete physical isolation. So yeah, that came out of a, a government. Right. Yeah, you know, when I did it, when I was doing it back in the day, when we ran, they, they, you know, you know this, but there are different levels of, of government data. So there's no foreign, there's confidential, there's classified, and there's special access. When we would run, say, a classified, right, not only did every piece of physical hardware have to be isolated, so its own switches, its own network cables, but even when you ran the conduit for classified, you couldn't use flanged conduit, the conduit that couldn't be screwed in, they had to be welded. So it had to be a single piece of conduit that ran the wires. It was a very big deal to do air gap for classified. Right. That's not exactly this. This is more of a commercial version of it. Right. But to your point, one of the big characteristics is that there is a separation, and by nature a separation when you come to Iron Mountain, between your network and ours. Right. And being able to sever that connection is what creates the air gap. Right. And that's a lot of what we're doing here. So we call it a logical air gap, but for the purposes of what you know, 99% of the companies in the world are going to do, it's good enough. It definitely is. And, and you know, and it's, and it's not as if it's just taking, you know, a, an extension of your network down, right? right. Th these are two completely independent domains, completely independent mm -hmm. networks yep. where, you know, we're ultimately capturing data. Um, we're providing the right tools and technology to... Full automation. Yeah, to automate that capture of the data, to randomize that capture of the data, to do it at a random point in time so it's unpredictable. Um, you know, then, then ultimately moving that data uh, to our secure facility uh, via encryption. the network with robust right. encryption, of course, um, and, and then being able to sever that connection, if you will, sure. and ensure that the data is protected in a, um, in a you know, worm state, right? Uh, right one. Uh, yeah, non-volatile. Right? Non-volatile, yeah. Or immutable copy. Immutable right. is, the, is the right word, actually. Um, so, you know, again, all of that being a component of the solution, all of that being critical to developing a process to enable you to recover, and that is really the intent. Right? So, you know, what I say, you know, half-jokingly to customers, I think it's, it's a good illustration of this. Um, I was in a meeting in, in uh, Atlanta, and my wife and my kid came down because uh, we were going to drive down to Florida to see my daughter in college. But when I was in the meeting, they decided they were going to go out, right? So they went to the Coca-Cola factory. You ever go to the Coca-Cola factory? I have not. All right, I've never been there either. My wife and kids have been there, I've never been there. <laughs> so in the Coca-Cola factory, I'm told, right, there is a copy of the Coca-Cola recipe, right? And it's like down behind glass and a vault and you can see it from a distance, right? right. And ostensibly, that is the only copy of the Coca-Cola recipe that exists. Now, I don't actually believe that, but for the sake of this particular conversation, let's pretend that that's the truth mm -hmm. and that Coke's not lying to us, right? right? So what I say to customers, right, is if Coca-Cola were to lose the recipe to Coke, right, and they couldn't make Coca-Cola anymore, right, all they can make is Sprite, right, or 7-Up, whatever they make on the other side, would they still be Coca-Cola, right? The answer is no. Nobody says, oh, you know, Sprite. Coca-Cola is, is Coca-Cola, right. right? That's the kind of data that goes in here, right? And once it's in here, it's air-gapped, it can't be accessed, and it can't be changed. So even if you were to have a complete disaster on your primary system, your backup system and your DR system's gone, right. right? You still have this data. And what's important about it is it's not just the physical gap, right? That's right. a big part of this, but there's also what I call an administrative gap, right? right? The idea being that, you know, your people, right? And this is kind of an important point too. You worked internal IT, did you ever work internal engineering? Yeah. All right. So you probably know this too. So I was an engineer for a long time, right? Before I went into the dark side of doing sales, right? <laughs> But I was an internal engineer for a long time. Yep. Right? And I ran a team, an open source team in a very large company. Yep. But we were only responsible for Linux, Unix, 
and VMware. Right. That was it. That was it. Right. Right. However, I worked there seven years. Right. By the time I left, because people would call at three o'clock in the morning, this is not working. That's not working. They'd, hey, James, can you help out? Sure. By the time I left, I knew everything there was to know about my stuff. Right. Plus the Windows environment and the AD environment. Right. And the Outlook <laughs> environment, right. uh, rather the Exchange environment, and the switching environment, and this and that. I knew everything. Right. I could have, if I wanted to, destroy that company from the inside, including the backup systems. Like, I had access to all that, too, right? Right. I promise you, in every company that we speak to and every company that we'll ever come in contact with, there are people like that, right? right? So if you have a malicious actor that you've given that kind of access to, right, right it doesn't matter what you've done. They'll destroy it. Agreed. If you come into an air gap solution, especially a third-party air gap solution where a third-party controls that copy of the data, right. you have an administrative gap. Your people can destroy everything on your side, right? But they can't access our stuff. Correct. And I'm not saying it's impossible that our people <laughs> couldn't also be out of their minds and they could destroy everything that we have. But they can't access the other side of the house. Correct. So one copy of the data will always survive because the reality is you could compromise one organization. The ability to compromise two organizations becomes almost, you know, it's statistically impossible. Right, yeah, yeah. And that's really the advantage of doing it off-site. Yeah, and... and Agreed. And one of the things, too, I just want to, as you started into that, just talking around the, the secret recipe, if you will, right? Sure. Um, and the difference between what I brought up on the on the screen for those that are watching the video, what we kind of call the data protection pyramid, if you will, or I like to call it the data protection mountain. Uh, the pyramid um, of protection. The pyramid of protection yes. is better. Yeah, alliteration is good. Um, the difference between kind of your archival data set, your backup, right, your disaster recovery, which which you which you walked through as you were telling the story, um, and what really should be considered for what the industry has kind of deemed the term around isolated recovery, which is what our our CPR solution is intended to solve for. It's very important that you're understanding the type of data um, that really requires this level of protection. You know, the the secret recipe, if you will, the the customer database that if was lost you would never be able to You're not recover, looking for right? pictures of the last company picture. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, and, and that can be a challenge for, for organizations as well, just trying to identify Absolutely. and understand their data. What data, you know, what data truly uh, makes that up, right? Um, that's where the, some of the advisory services and things like that that we can offer customers becomes very critical. So. I, I, don't, I don't think it's just critical, I think it's imperative. I think that a lot of the value we add in these discussions is understanding you know what data you have right mm -hmm. what data you need to keep what data and it's and it's really individual to your business what data if if all hell breaks loose right mm -hmm. what data do you need to either return to service or if you become defunct as an entity satisfy your escrow and, and regulatory requirements right the answer is different for everyone right mm -hmm. but we have the services uh, IDGS in particular has services to come in and help you with that information and that's a big part of the value add of this. It's not just, hey, we're going to put data in here. It's what right. data is important and what do we do with the data. Yeah. And that's really something that I think, uh, you know, from a, a company standpoint, we're moving toward that anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, I, we really are. I mean, you look at, so we have our IGDS that, that you just mentioned, our Information Governance and Digital Solutions group within Iron Mountain, um, you know, coming together across our digital portfolio of sure. services. It allows us to, to come in and talk to a customer and, and really help them through that in, entire journey as they think about, um, actually, as we have the, the pyramid up here, right, as they think about both how do I identify data that is archival in nature, right, uh, how do I, what kind of tools can I use to ensure that data is appropriately yeah. protected and archived. The, the great part about that lead-in is once you've identified the data that needs to be kept, you're also identifying the data that you no longer yeah. need to retain, the data that may be putting you at risk. Um, the data that's consuming expensive primary storage, or or discovery risk, right. or somebody's going to ask for it in a lawsuit. Sure. Right, and then uh, and we'll probably talk it, about that in a, in a future sure. episode and in some more details. But once you identify that, then it's kind of all right. Once that's appropriately archived, once it's properly protected and and it's not changing, so you can typically move that data into a lower cost tier. Now you focus on what data needs to be back up for operational recovery, mm -hmm. right? And that's kind of you're actively changing data. And then of that data subset, how much of it, it, you know, you now have a backup copy. What is your disaster recovery SLAs? So do you need to implement additional solutions to give you uh, a better recovery time and recovery point objective for some of that data? It may not be sure. all of it. 
um, and, and then you know further honing down in on what is that absolute mission critical data that requires an isolated so recovery. So I'm, I'm going to steal a quote, and I don't remember who said it, but there was somebody who said that there's a tremendous amount of information, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, a tremendous amount of data, yeah. but not a lot of information, right? People don't know what they have. There's right. no knowledge around it. Right. So even to your point, you know, <laughs> we talked about the dark data uh, a couple months ago. Remember our dark data conversation? I have a dark data T-shirt on. Or a dark data T-shirt on. So <laughs> dark data, and, and I actually spent uh, the month before Christmas uh, coming up with a backstory for the creature we called the dark data. We were going to put him into an ad campaign as like a comic book. Mm-hmm. So um, my, my ability to draw is non-existent. But I made up this whole thing with the dark data, so it's kind of near and dear to my heart. But um, and maybe we'll share some of my horrible drawings in another episode. But the idea is that you know people have this tremendous well of information, right? But they have no idea what's in it. And one of the things I think we'll talk about in the future is like what we can do with that data, you know, data lakes and whatnot. Uh, data analytics, right? Data analytics, I mean, sure. we literally just launched, uh, you know, the MVP of a platform, sure. uh, our insights platform to enable uh, analytics on the data. So that's something we'll definitely talk about uh, more But detail. another bolt-on to using that. Data. Absolutely. But yeah. one of the things that's really important, is, and insight it's important for too, is the idea of clean data, right? right? So people talk about data lakes, but there's this new idea of clean data lakes, right? So you only want the data that's particularly relevant to a situation. So for CPR, you're only looking for the critical you're kind of distilling this giant thing down right. into a point, right? right. Where this is the 10 things I need right. to run my company. Yep. And that kind of exercise and that kind of intelligence, it, it's going to become more important, and it's going to become more important not only across our product portfolio, but in the industry in general. Because right. if you think about it, almost every one of our products can benefit from that. Right. Like even backup, like something as innocuous and simple as backup. Right now, I back up 500 machines, right? Well, it turns out, and, and we get this all the time when we do analysis, 30% of those machines are completely redundant. Right. I need them for production, right? I need to know I have you know multiple ADs and multiple this, right? But I don't need that in disaster recovery or backup. I only need one copy of the data. Right. Identifying the relevant data out of that giant cloud of dark data is not only a you know incredibly valuable to the customer, but it's incredibly valuable for us as a value-added solution. You know, it drives value, it drives revenue, but it also makes our solutions look you know, I believe in what we do now, and I think we have a quality solution, but it enhances the perception of its value. Like, people are like, oh, that's something I didn't think of myself. That's right. a really, that's extra that you're giving me. Yeah. And that's a big part of how we can drive forward with business and really, you know, reinforce the fact that Iron Mountain is a partner that can help you not only, you know, put stuff in a box or throw data mm-hmm. into a place, but give you a complete life cycle management, understanding all I mean, it's it's really who we've been on the physical side and, and who we are today on the digital side yes. and how we're transforming as an organization in, in, in our whole services portfolio for our customers. So um, I think on that note, it's probably probably a good time to wrap wrap things so, up. Um, let me leave them with one other thought, and, <laughs> sure. we'll, and this will be my wrap-up thought. Right? <laughs> so another reason that you shouldn't store your data, especially your backup and archive data or your critical protection data on site, right? If you take your data, and it doesn't matter if you have multiple data centers, it doesn't matter. If you take your data and you put it anywhere near the people who are responsible for the production data, if you give one person access to all that data, no matter what you do to secure it, you still have a problem. So for example, if you take this data and you put it into a Faraday cage, right? I don't know if everybody's familiar with that, but a Faraday cage is an RF cage that goes around a machine cuts off all ability to communicate. So no signals get in, no signals get out. It's supposed to be the height of security, can't be more secure. Well, there's a guy named Mordecai Geary, he's another researcher, and he specializes in stealing data from Faraday cages. So if he has physical access, no matter what you've done, if he can see the machines, not that he's accessing them on a keyboard, Mm -hmm. if he can see them or hear them, he can steal your data. He reads the light signatures from the way the disks blink, the way the noise is in the machine when it's processing, mm-hmm. the heat signatures of the machine, he can use all of that information to reconstruct and steal your data. Yeah, and I've, I've seen, I've read articles on, on hackers who have been able to similarly leverage if there is any type of speaker installed mm-hmm. to be able to any communicate kind of bi-directionally, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, in, input and output data to a machine to hack it through infrared camera uh, yeah. pulses reading uh, some elements of the screen mm-hmm. and transmitting data. It's so if you give anybody access right. to your data, right? Yeah. If you keep your data, your your critical recovery protection data, yeah. anywhere near your primary or backup data, yeah. 
and you give those same people any kind of access, even if they can just see it across the room, you still potentially have a problem. If you move it into a facility like Iron Mountain, no one will ever touch it again until you need it. Right. And that is a level of protection that you cannot get in your own data centers, no matter what you do. Right. So that's my final thought for the day. That's a good final thought, and I'm going to final your final thought just by putting my... <laughs> Always got a one-up me, Cliff. Well, my last, the last thing I want to talk about is just, just kind of putting, putting your money where your mouth is, right? So sure. the fact that we're not just talking about protecting information, that we're actually doing this for organizations today. Um, and we just had a deal come through which involves replicating data um, to, uh, to our Iron Cloud, um, to our cloud data replication solution, and then taking a copy of that data down to tape. So, and you're very familiar with yes. that deal. Um, you just want to talk very high level, very quick, just so that everyone can understand. I mean, this is something that we're, we're really truly doing for organizations today. Keep storage. Um, in, in that case, you know, doing the, the tape out, if you will, as a component of the cloud, what we call our deep storage uh, capability within Iron Cloud, and, and, you know, just for this particular organization, what sure. the value of that really meant. So, I mean, deep storage is, well, tape is a funny animal, right? So for a long time, tape was a dirty word. People didn't want to deal with tape. But the reality is tape is cheap and it's reliable, right? And it's yeah. kind of having a second life here, and this is an example of it. Tape, by its nature, right, it's written to tape. When you write data to tape and you take it offline and you put it in a physical vault, right? right? By its nature, it's air-gapped and immutable, right? You cannot touch or alter that data unless you physically compromise the media and reload it. Right. People are using tape as sort of a poor man's air-gap, but they're also using it as a very cheap way to store data that they very infrequently access, data that they don't touch. And what's kind of cool about it is that we're leveraging the fact that we do tape pretty well, right, to give them a very cloud-like experience. So you're going to replicate your data like you normally would, and then we're going to take it, we're going to put it on tape. Right. But as far as they're concerned, that's a right. service. All as a service. Right. Yep. It, it looks like a cloud service. It's priced like a cloud service. Right. It's physically not. I mean, we're doing something different underneath, right? right? But as far as they know, they're getting data cheaper than what you would get on Glacier, right? And they're getting data that's more reliable if there was a disaster. Right. Like nobody can compromise. You'd have to break into our facility, which is next to impossible. Right. And even if you did, you'd have to find the tape, which is also next to impossible. Right. Talking about millions of square feet of, of warehouse right. space. And you'd have to have access to the catalog and the encryption and keys and everything. All else, that's right? all of that. But yep. the point yep. being, from a, a customer side, all they see is the ease of use and the security. Yep. And the cloud-like pricing and the evergreen nature of it. Right. No more equipment to buy, no more um, capacity planning, no more uplifts, no more having to deal with upgrading either a tape library, right? Or the thing that people don't think about, and I think it's kind of lost in this conversation, I have all this data I need to store. I only have so much primary disk to store it to. Right. Like I bought a data domain, it's only so big, right? Well, I can take that data indefinitely and move it onto tape, right? As long as I don't expire it out of the catalog, it can exist on tape forever. Right. And I don't have to keep increasing the size of my data domain. It takes customers out of the business of doing hardware upgrades, out of the business of doing capacity planning, and most important to a customer, out of the business of miscalculating their capital. Right. So if I buy for a five-year stretch and two years in I'm out of space, well, that makes me looking an idiot as a manager. I have to go and say, well, I made a mistake. I need a lot more capital. Right. We can take that away. They never need to worry about that again. Right. And they will never compromise security, and it's as easy to use as any other cloud service. Yeah, no. That the scalability, the predictability, right, and being able to. It, it's how we close this deal. So this particular industry is a regulated. They're a utility. Right. They have strict regulation around compliance and storage, and they didn't want to have to store data that they are literally never going to touch again. Right. But it has to be retained. On a super expensive solution. We give them a nice, cheap way to do it, super secure, very easy for them to use right. without all the complications of, and the hassle even of having some poor guy have to change tapes, right. which I did for the beginning of my career, which is nightmarish. Or just add, you know, disk capacity sure. over and over again, over how many years, right? Or so. work over Thanksgiving or Christmas <laughs> to do an uplift, <laughs> to do it, that right. happened yeah. too. All that goes away. Yeah, that's great. All right, well on that note, we, we, we made it through. We promised this time. Yes. This is the yeah. actual <laughs> last We, we have made it to the right. end of this episode. Uh, truly appreciate it. If anyone has, has made it through this journey with us <laughs> to if, the if end. If you stuck with us <laughs> in our rambling, we hope we appreciate it. And um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hope to kind of put these out consistently if they're well received. So thank you again for your time. 
And uh, if you run into us in the cafeteria, come over. We're happy to sign autographs, whatever you guys want from us. We're, we're here for you. Oh, boy. I might be flying solo on the next episode. Just kidding. All right. Hey, man, I'm the talent. All right. Thank you much. Thanks, Take care. Everybody.